0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone around the world. Thank you so much for joining us today for this seminar on the African Continental Free Trade Agreement and all of the economic distribution changes we can expect. IFPRI is delighted to be hosting and I am thrilled to be your moderator. My name is Julie Kurtz. I am a research analyst with the Markets, Trades and Institutions Division at IFPRI. In just a few days, African countries will begin implementing the much anticipated African continental free trade area, creating the largest contiguous free trade area in the world. Today our presenters will discuss how this agreement will change food flow, trade flows, and African agricultural production, food supply chains, as well as how these changes will be distributed with impacts on regional poverty, livelihood changes, and food security. We are thrilled to have you join us today. We encourage you to submit questions throughout the event. You can do that on the website directly on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. I am delighted to introduce our first speaker, Mibolo, who will is a Senior Program Coordinator at the Regional Network of Agricultural Policy Research Institutes, RENAPRI, um, who will introduce our seminar.
1: Thank you, thank you, Julie. It's a pleasure to be a part of this really interesting discussion for the African continent. Good morning, good afternoon, and give good evening to all um, of you uh, participants from wherever you may be, and a warm welcome to this webinar, which is focused, as Julie said, on the African continental free trade area, popularly known as the AFCFTA. And today's webinar will be asking a very pertinent question. How will economic distribution change as a result of the AF CFTA? Um, so this event of course is being organized uh, and hosted by uh, the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI uh, in collaboration with the African Continental Task Force on food and nutrition security data and hunger hotspots in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Quite a mouthful there. (laughs) That's what COVID does to us. So other collaborators uh, for this webinar today include the World Bank, uh, who are part of the task force that I just um, introduced, and UNECA, uh, also known as UNECA, uh, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa. And they will be joining IFPRI in delivering interesting presentations today concerning um, the AFCFTA. So I've been introduced already by um, Julie. Uh, I am from RENAPRI, the Regional Network of Agricultural Policy Research Institutes and our network members are National Agricultural Policy Research Centers based in Central, East, Southern and West Africa. And uh, our research interests include operationalization of the AFCFTA, how interesting is that? Uh, Value chain analysis, the economy of fertilizer, and matters relating to resilience. Um, This is among others. So together with Dr. Antoine Bouet, who is on this um, webinar with us, I co-chair the task force on food and nutrition security data and hunger hotspots during the COVID-19 pandemic. This task force was launched under the auspices of the Regional Food Trade Coalition, which is hosted by AGRA, the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa, Some of you may recall that the Regional Food Trade Coalition was launched in September last year in Accra, Ghana during the AGRF. And this was at a time when COVID-19 was completely unknown. So the um, objectives of the Regional Food Trade Coalition have obviously had to change over time and hence the launch of this task force um, that Antoine and myself co-chair at the moment. And the main purpose of the task force is to coordinate the collection and sharing of timely and credible data, information, knowledge products, and best practices concerning the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on food trade, food and nutrition security, on resilience of value chains, as well as on mitigation interventions that are being taken by different actors, including our national governments, as well as other national, regional, and international organizations. So Regional trade is at the heart of this task force and um, the task force also looks at um, shared data, the importance of sharing data as uh, institutions that are working within the same space uh, and also doing inventories of um, knowledge products and best practices that are expected to support evidence-based planning and implementation of appropriate measures. Um, at the level of our national governments, but also um, at regional level and continental level. The task force also further seeks to identify gaps and um, regularly update information in a a collaborative fashion. And this is why the task force brings together various um, actors, including development partners, think tanks in the continent, private sector. They are all part of this um, task force. Um, So um, the task force secretariat is based at AGRA, uh, and so I want to use this opportunity to invite uh, participants who feel that they could contribute to this task force to please get in touch with the secretariat at AGRA uh, and um, uh, declare your interest so that you can join us if you meet the criteria to be part of uh, this uh, task force. So this webinar today is a second among the activities that members of the task force have been undertaking, uh, including IFPRI, who have organized uh, this webinar today. And we will do this regularly as members of the task force using various tools to disseminate data and information to our national governments and other key stakeholders um, on how best to deal with issues around regional food trade. The first activity, uh, which is almost complete, is a comprehensive evidence synthesis of policy responses to the COVID-19 pandemic by our national government in Africa. And I'm sure this will interest a a lot of participants. The the final report will interest a lot of you who are in the audience. And this is work that was funded by USAID and, and AGRA and is being implemented by experts from RENAPRI, from the network of RENAPRI and the University of Washington. So, today's webinar speaks to the AFCFTA and provides perspectives from three institutions. And your comments, your questions, your general contributions will be welcome because they will assist presenters and their teams to further hone their final product. So, as we are all aware, and as Julie earlier said, every one of us is waiting for the operationalization of the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. Uh, which I believe is expected to create the largest free trade area in the world, measured by the number of participating countries. The agreement covers 1.3 billion people across 55 African countries with a combined gross domestic product valued at United States dollars 3.4 trillion. This is according to the World Bank. We are told that the AFCFTA has the potential to lift 30 million people out of extreme poverty. So we are waiting to see this happen. And we are also being told that agreements are only as good as the tools that are available to ensure their successful implementation. This AFCFTA will require tools to ensure that it is successful. It is therefore important to ensure that our governments put in place significant policy reforms and trade facilitation measures in order to ensure that this agreement achieves its full potential. So, so I look forward to an interesting conversation today. Um, and this is following, of course, very three very rich presentations from our colleagues, IFPRI, the World Bank and UNECA. And so without much ado, allow me to congratulate and thank IFPRI for organizing this event. Uh, and for allowing the task force to share your space. I now hand over to Julie uh, to continue with the um, moderation of this webinar. Uh, And Julie, you are the research analyst and chair of the sustainability task force at IFPRI. So I thought I should introduce you because you introduced me. So over to you, Julie.
0: Thank you so much, I'm. First of all, we are honored to have you on this, on this presentation and no one could have presented just what how important um, the AfCFTA is for the continent of Africa and um, understanding, just setting the stage so well for the rest mm-hmm. of the speakers. So mm-hmm. I'm delighted to present next, David Laborde, who is a Senior Research
2: Fellow at IFPRI. David. Thanks everyone for joining us today. Uh, we already had the perfect introduction for this session. Um, Now I am going to try to go um, more deeper in some of the key aspects of this agreement, and in particular for what's going to come in the next couple of months, is the opening of some markets with the removal of existing tariff barriers in particular. And I'm going to try to see what it means for uh, agricultural markets. But I will also start by saying why it's so important to have it now. Next slide, please. So. Um, this process uh, is has actually started, uh, at least clearly, in 2014. Uh, there was discussion uh, before, and it took place in a longer uh, set of events that will lead to a deeper economic integration of the African uh, continent. Now, on January 1st, what we uh, should see is the uh, beginning of the removal of some tariffs uh, on uh, intra-African uh, trade relations. Let me start by saying that you know, there is already a number of a large number of trade flows that do not face tariffs because in the last 15 years, 20 years, or a bit more, for some subregions, uh, we have seen this regional integration process taking place in West Africa, in East Africa, in Southern Africa. And so By block, the continent has already moved to remove these uh, tariff barriers. Now what we want to do is to make sure that all over the continent, um, this block can trade freely among themselves. Due to COVID-19, but also because uh, actually tariffs are still a sensitive issue for for many countries, we still don't know exactly what will be the uh, product that will start to be um, liberalized in now a couple of weeks. And that already show uh, some of the delays that the process has taken. Same thing for rules of origin, they are not all uh, finalized. And so it mean that you see in two weeks when deliberation should have started, uh, right now the private sector doesn't really know what's going to happen. So not surprising here, all these trade negotiations take time, but uh, we, we see that between the uh, political will and the implementation, Um, there is um, some things to do. And of course, after the removal of some tariffs, the uh, efforts to get harmonization, or at least self-recognition of norms, in particular in terms of phytosintary principle, um, we are going to have the beginning of the phase two of negotiation that will uh, pave the way for a deeper integration on service, on investment, on competition policy, on uh, intellectual property rights, that when you think about the food system and the, the food security and nutrition ecosystem, uh, plays also an important role. So today I'm mainly going to focus on this first element, meaning the tariff and the tariff schedule, but just think that there is a broader agenda and uh, the, the, the great colleague that will talk about me with will give you a, a deeper discussion on that. Next slide, please. So as I've said, the ISFTA itself is uh, an important milestone in a vision for the African continent that has started, um, depending how you want to go back in history, but at least clearly uh, more than 10 years. And uh, in 2014 with the Malabo declaration, it was also clear that uh, there was an impetus to uh, accelerate the uh, actual trade among African countries. And one of the objectives was by 2025, and so between 2015 to 2025, triple intra-Africa trade. And we are not there yet, and we are not on track, basically. Because yes, uh, between 2005 and 2015, actually intra-Africa trade has quadrupled with the strong uh, dynamism of some um, sub-regional groups within the continent. So it was basically a 15% increase per year, in order to achieve the Malabo Declaration, we should have do, or we should do between 2015 and twenty fifteen 20, and 2025 a twelve percent. But the last few years have just been marked by a slowdown with a five percent increase. And actually, uh, it's clear that we will not manage to do much better without strong uh, policies. If you look at one of the uh, publication. Uh, done by a spring collaboration with academia 2063 and Antoine Way is one of the editor called the African agricultural trade monitors. You will see a lot of this information, but you will see also understand some of the challenges. Meaning that actually the, the Africa offers on world market is quite diversified even in terms of agricultural product. It, it has been diversified in the recent years. You know, it's not just the fact that Africa is exporting cocoa and tea, this picture is the past. But what we have seen is, Uh, There's still a bit of mismatch between what the African demand is about and what the African supply is about. So this is why actually Africa continues to export a lot um, beyond the continent and import uh, from trade partners also beyond the continent. And the question is how we can um, try to see this well in mind between the uh, continental demand and continental supply and what will be the policy that will help. Next slide, please. And trade liberalization is going to be one of it. But as I have said, we are not going to see an elimination of all the tariffs. Actually, you are going to have some sensitive product that will take time to be uh, liberalized. And subset of product, actually 3% of the product and up to 10% of uh, the value of trade can be just excluded. And because some countries are very specialized in a few products, that can have a drastic impact on them. And what we have seen, first, in other trade negotiations, but what seems to be also the case for uh, the IFCFTA is, agriculture is, in relative terms, more impacted by this sensitivity than the rest of the the economy. Um, You have some food security concern, You have uh, some political sensitivity. You still have some countries that want to assess self-sufficiency, independently of where the the food comes from. And therefore, we see much more of this flexibility in the negotiation that are used to uh, limit the liberalization of uh, agricultural markets. And that's a key revolution in terms of how policymakers have to look at this. You cannot increase regional trade if you just want to export more. By definition, some African countries will export more. Maybe most of them will export more, but also some countries will need to import more. And at the end, that has to be accepted. You need to import more. You need to create market access for your partners if you want to get market access from them. Next slide, please. So when you start to uh, put this in different models, and at IFPRI we really focus on this question of trade, about how the sensitive product can be selected by different countries, what it means when you have RECs that have to, so regional entity that have to, to conciliate uh, the different um, preferences for member state on that. Also this detailed trade pattern and specialization across product, meaning that, you know, where we are going to see trade creation and trade deviation that require uh, a lot of details, but also how countries are going to react in terms of macroeconomic adjustment that can actually change the outcome of this trade liberalization. I'm not going to enter in all these details now, but just to say that we try to control for that. um, And I'm just going to illustrate some key points. Next slide, please. So when you start to uh, take into account this uh, tariff liberalization, and what it means just in terms of tariffs over time. And on my slide here, you see four lines. The one on the top is about the evolution of the agricultural tariffs. And yes, agricultural products are more protected to start with than uh, industrial product. And actually most of the protection may remain because if you see the upper blue line uh, where there is no exclusion, actually we are going to go to, to zero. So all the market within Africa will be liberalized. But you see with this possibility to exclude or delay Deliberation of some product, you still are going to have half of the protection that remains because it's going to be concentrated, and that I think one of the big challenges of the uh, agricultural liberalisation in the ISFTA. A few details can really um, uh, wash a big part of the liberalisation. Next slide, please. So, if we look at the macroeconomic impact of the liberalisation, focusing on tariffs, we have limited results, maximum, even without a sensitive product, we may have an increase of less than 1% of real income for the countries. Actually, within countries and within the continent, you have big winners and you have some countries that are basically uh, not best off but not worst off. So for some countries, the gains can be much more important, but in average, they are uh, limited. But as soon as we introduce this product that can not can escape the liberalization, you see that the overall gain can be cut by uh, more or less two-thirds, so a few sensitive products can really undermine the whole process. Next slide, please. If you look at the agricultural trade dynamics within the continent, here we start from a base 100 in 2018, and you see the red, what will happen without any new policy, Uh, clearly we will not triple agricultural trade. Actually, without, with the ISFTA and without trade liberalization, we will have triple actual trade, not by 2025, but at least by 2035. But here also, sensitive product actually it a big part of the potential market gain. So how we are going to make sure that over time all the markets are integrated and really we don't have some pocket of protection that really hurt the interest of, of some of the partners is going to be key. Next slide, please. If I look at, of course, you can look at the export chains by uh, countries or or by group of countries here, and in terms of export and imports. and yes, you have some countries that are in group of countries that can see significant increase in the export uh, to the African continent, 60%, 70% in terms of potential, if everything is liberalized, Um, 30, 40%, 20% with the sensitive product. So you see some countries or group of countries can be impacted by this few uh, sensitivity, but it's not uh, homogenous. So that's why all the negotiations have to be important. But also you have some countries that are going to increase their imports much more in terms of cultural product than their export. Of course, they are going to export other type of product. In particular, in industry, the ISFTA can really be a part of the industrialization process of Africa, so some countries are going to take this train, while others will uh, expand their agriculture. Next slide, please. If we look within the agricultural uh, sectors, uh, and here it's about uh, the value added in agriculture, you will see that, yes, uh, some regions uh, like uh, Southern Africa can really increase the export, in particular in processed food, or North Africa, basically some of the the most advanced economies of Africa can uh, increase their uh, processed exports and processed production, uh, while other will uh, specialize in more primary product, when other basically economies are just going to phase out a bit uh, of agriculture and just accelerate their industrialization process. And that's why with the IFCFTA, you are going to see less agricultural growth than with, it's not a problem, it just, you know, you are going to evolve in terms of economy structure in the allocation of resources. Next slide, please. Um, so, in order to uh, actually conclude, uh, I think that we really need to see this IFCFT becoming a reality. Um, we have to also make sure that policymakers understand that doing more trade means to import more and to export more. That's quite important. And we have also, and that will be my final remarks, other policies will come in complement of the AF in particular CADEP. You know, developing this production process is important, but also the harmonization of, of norms uh, and the food safety in order to have good food quality, but market that operate uh, in a good manner will be key. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, David, um, for that insightful presentation to set the stage. I'm happy now to pass the baton to Marla Malishevsko. Marla Who's a, sorry, pardon, Marla is a senior economist at the World Bank Group.
3: Marla. Thank you. So, um, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining this uh, seminar. Thank you to Ifri for, for their kind invitation. Um, I want to walk you through the key findings of our recent report um, that the World Bank has published on the Africa AFCFDA and specifically on the economic and distributional effects of the agreement. The report is available on the website uh, with uh, country-specific results and all the details, so I'll try to be relatively uh, brief. Next slide, please. So what I want to walk you through today is um, very briefly on the state of play, because um, David has already given a great introduction, focus on the economic and distributional effects, tell you a little bit more about the impacts on trade, on uh, agricultural and food products, and maybe just to conclude what the role of AFCFT during, and, and, um, during the pandemic and uh, its role in terms of the recovery. What I wanna stress here is that the study has been done, uh, conducted at the request of the, trade commissioner, His Excellency uh, Muchanga, um, and he asked us specifically to look at the distributional effects. And for that reason, we we compiled a new data set on employment and wages of female and male workers. Uh, It's by no means perfect, but it's quite uh, comprehensive and it's also available on, on the website of the report. Next slide, please. So next slide, please. Uh, Again, so I'll go very briefly on the state of uh, play um, because David has already talked about it, but what I really wanna stress uh, uh, here is that we we are fully aligned in uh, thinking that the agreement has a huge potential to to diversify trade and economies of uh, African uh, countries. It has a huge potential to attract FDI, accelerate growth provide new job opportunities and reduce poverty. But of course, this all depends on the level of ambition of the forthcoming negotiation on services, the, uh, the IPR competition, investment, e-commerce, all of those uh, um, measures and, and of course on implementation, which is not a given. It's a, it's a long process, it's a costly process and it's critical to the success of the agreement. So what I wanna do here is to show you kind of an aspirational scenario where it could take us But of course it's all subject to the continued negotiations and and implementation. Next slide please. So in terms of the um, progress so far, um, what we know is that countries are supposed to start trading on January 1st but there is still some uh, uh, issues that remain to be negotiated like sensitive goods and What we had to do in this study, we had to um, make some assumptions on what we believe will be the 3% sensitive goods that will be excluded from liberalization. So we followed the modality of the uh, AFCFT tariff liberalization that differentiates between LDCs and the group of seven and non-LDCs and different schedule for tariff liberalization. All I want to highlight here is that the 3% sensitive goods excluded from uh, liberalization were a selected based on the on the tariff revenue uh, that they bring on the intra A F C F T A trade, basically run the goods, and and, and selected those that account for three percent um, um, of trade. So next slide, please. What else? Uh, well, what else uh, I uh, I wanted also to highlight that uh, continued negotiations on commitments on trading services uh, are critical. And we think there is a huge potential for uh, fostering progressive liberalization based on the WTO plus positive list and the exchange of offer by member states um, that, that really creates a, a potential to reduce the, the barriers to trade to have a common set of uh, rules and transparency where the countries will commit not to put up any more barriers in terms of trade of serv- in services. So when it comes to services, it's not so much about uh, liberalization per se in terms of reducing bias, but in terms of committing to transparency uh, and um, not increasing the barriers, but also um, providing the, all the legislation that's needed to, to trade in services. And um, next slide, please. So um, next slide, please. Um, then um, I want to now walk you briefly through the methodology and the new data. And I know we um, uh, we're slowly running out of time. So very uh, briefly, the overview is: uh, it's a similar tool to what uh, David was discussing. It's a computable dynamic general equilibrium model. We use it to look at the economic implications, so impact on on growth, on employment, or on trade, or um, output by sectors we also apply micro simulations because we were uh, focusing on the distributional un- outcomes so looking at household surveys income distribution we also uh, look at the uh, tariff revenue using partial to model which is part of the report and might be of interest to to, to you uh, we are currently working on adding the potential impact of AFCFTA on FDI which we believe will be critical to maximize the gains and um, will um, Bring the well, basically the, the our estimates were done before COVID, so this is something that that needs to be bear in mind. That the, for example, the poverty estimate curve estimates do not take that into consideration. So at some um, to some degree, we might be overestimating the gains. At the same time, once we add the FTI, we expect the gains to be so much more higher due to inflow of capital. And we also created the new data set on employment and wages. Uh, let me now move on to the next slide, please, to start discussing the, uh, the scenarios. Uh, I've already discussed the tariff liberalisation and the reasons why we think there is a good uh, reason to believe that if um, there are ambitious commitments under um, technical barriers to trade, SPS, there will be reduction of non-tariff barriers involved in trade in goods and services. And in general, those are the uh, the procedures that are related to technical barriers to trade. SPS, they are there to protect consumer welfare and safety, but but often the differences in those regulations or the administrative costs related with compliance are, are uh, pretty the unnecessary barriers to trade. And we believe that AFT, AFCFTA has the potential to reduce them by 50%. This is... Um, Kind of like a standard assumption for the deep agreements that go well beyond tariffs, and finally the the assumptions on the trade facilitation measures. So um, if you look at the chapter on trade facilitation of the A F C F T A, despite the fact that several countries are not WTO members, the chapter reminds very much the text of the WTO trade facilitation agreement. It's, it's in its spirit. And um, so we believe um, that the ambitious scenario aspirational one would be to assume that all countries implement those commitments in the Trade Facilitation Annex of the AfCFTA, as if they were implementing the Trade Facilitation Agreement. And trade facilitation measures involve improving border infrastructure and reducing cost of administrative procedures. Uh, and that ultimately makes easier for African businesses to integrate into regional and global value. Plans. And um, next slide. So, once you put those impacts together, what happens if you reduce tariffs, tariffs, and non tariff measures in goods and services, and that trade facilitation? We estimate that the real income in Africa as a continent could decrease by uh, 445 billion. The way to look at this is to uh, think of this uh, GDP of income level of the continent in 2035 at the end of the implementation. Period and compare it to what it would have been without the AFCFTA. So, once something important to stress here that the CG model are here to provide scenario analysis to allow you to think through consequences of different policy changes, but are not these are not projections. This is basically uh, what you think would happen if you have a certain baseline in mind, which is continuation of past trends, uh, uh, including the increases in um, uh, working age population and uh, and other factors. And you get to a certain level in 2035, then you implement the trade facilitation, tariff and NTM reductions, and you get to a higher level with the AFCFTA. There's a big heterogeneity of outcomes across countries with countries that uh, started with relatively high barriers gaining the most. But also it's important to note that the biggest gains come from the trade facilitation measures, then from the non-tariff measures reductions, and the gains from tariff liberalization are relatively small. And in fact, they actually, uh, we, we record some losses in terms of income, but they're really, really uh, small impacts. Next slide, please. And what I want to show you here is the impact of, potential impact of AFCFTA on trade. And what we see is that there is potential to to increase uh, total trade by up to 81% relative to what it would have been without the AFCFTA in terms of um, uh, exports uh, due to AFCFTA and members. And the biggest gains in trade with the AFCFTA members uh, would be in manufacturing, but also significant gains uh, in processed food and agriculture. for example, the, the boost to IFCFTA export in processed foods, it would be 91%, agriculture 49%. Uh, okay, two minutes. And what uh, what's important to note is that some countries will um, export more, some countries will export less, and as David was saying, it will have different impacts across countries, but overall there is huge potential to boost inter-African trade. Next slide, please. So, um, here uh, in, we're moving into focusing on the distributional aspect. So what we find is under our assumptions, the FCFDA has the potential to lift uh, an additional 30 million people out of extreme poverty, which is at $1.90 a day. Um, and what we see that the countries with high initial poverty rates will experience the greatest declines. And here, what you need to bear in mind is again, that this is the additional poverty reduction as a result of AFCFTA. So we already ex- expect a certain level of poverty reduction, which now will, have, sadly, due to COVID, will, uh, will, will not be as estimated uh, over a year ago, but um, this is the additional 30 million people. Next slide, please. Um, that shows you the people lifted out of the poverty uh, at $5.50 a day. And again, uh, half of this moderate poverty, half of the people lifted from moderate poverty will be in uh, Ethiopia, Nigeria, Tanzania, DRC, Kenya and Niger. And um, that's again a a huge boost to to consumption and and incomes of of households Um, due to, that's again due to the high boost of consumption income of households as a result of AFCFTA. Next slide, please. Just briefly focusing on the um, skilled and unskilled workers. So basically what's happening is that the production uh, of uh, various countries is changing as a result of AFCFTA, leading to a reallocation of resources. And um, that reallocation of resources leads to boost of sectors that are either intensive in unskilled workers or, or female workers, as you will see on the next slide. And basically we see an increase of wages due to IFCFTA, um, But this increase is a little bit faster for unskilled workers and also a little bit faster for female workers. Um, this is mostly because the industries that tend to employ these workers intensively uh, benefit more compared to other industries. But, but most of the uh, uh, work, but more, all of the type of workers so skilled and skilled female and male end up being better off. Thank you, next slide, uh, and the next one, because uh, um, that's already been discussed. The next one, please. Um, so very briefly, we also pull out the results on the uh, trade in agriculture and food products, uh, which you can see on the next slide, please. Um, this is the, the annual potential growth rates of intra-African exports. And the you can see the, the growth rate in the baseline, which is on average 15%. Um, which interestingly overlaps with the, with the rates, the historical rates and, um, and it's higher in the, under AFCFTA than in the baseline. So moving on to the next slide, um, please. The growth of uh, food products is, is a little bit uh, uh, lower, but in the same range, but uh, you have to bear in mind that these are the growth rates. So it's often when you look at the highest growth rate, they apply to countries with relatively small uh, volume of exports, so they, they grow quite a lot, but the starting point is low. Next slide, please. And so I want to conclude with just um, um, a couple of words about the role of AFCFTA uh, during and post COVID, and that's the next slide, please. Just to wrap up, um, we we think that you know there is a, a strong. Um, uh, there should be a strong push to to pursue the AFCFTA continued negotiation on services and the deep commitment, uh, because uh, in addition to the many benefits I've already mentioned earlier, the AFCFTA will will make the countries more resistant to future shocks, whether this be climate change or, God forbid, future pandemics. But they will be stronger with the AFCFTA than without, and that will be due to enhanced regional collaboration. To lower trade costs, that will make the economies more flexible, more resilient, and more diversified. And also, the, this is a huge opportunity to anchor expectations, uh, which will also bring the the much needed FDI boost. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Marla. Um, we are so fortunate to have such a team of experts presenting um, the the incredible analysis that they have been, do, been doing. Um, um, building up to the, the implementation in, on January 1st, so we will conclude uh, our team of expert presentations with Andrew Mould. Um, Andrew is the chief of regional integration of the AFCFTA cluster of the Office for Eastern Africa, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa.
4: Andrew. Thank you very much, uh, Julie. Um, good morning or good afternoon, colleagues, uh, wherever you are. Okay, um, I'm going to take you very quickly through a, a report our office has done, undertaken uh, this past year uh, with our colleagues in Trademark, East Africa, um, from the perspective of uh, Eastern Africa, looking specifically at the kind of benefits that uh, the region stands to gain. So let me take you very quickly through some of the stylized facts, just to stress the importance, I think, of the AFCFTA for the East African region. Now, Eastern Africa is well known for being a region with relatively low per capita income. It's a one of the poorest regions of Africa, but it's a very dynamic region. It's actually been one of the fastest growing regions, sub-regions in the world um, up to this period of the COVID-20 crisis. You can see we had the forecast there initially, which of course have been revised dramatic, dramatically downwards. Um, quite commonly, countries in Eastern Africa prior to COVID were also registered amongst the top 10 fastest growing countries in the world. However, uh, in our report, we stress very much that uh, Eastern Africa suffers from a number of uh, vulnerabilities in terms of its growth process. Some of those are global problems, such as the COVID problem we have now. The fiscal situation in countries like Ethiopia and Kenya currently is quite serious. Environmental impacts are very serious as well in Eastern Africa. But for the purpose of this presentation, I'm just going to illustrate a couple of structural and employment challenges, um, which have a lot of relevance to the AFCFTA. The first thing is that uh, when we look at the trend towards the structural diversification of the region, unfortunately, we've seen in recent years that that's stalled. Um, If you look here on this graph on the bottom axis, we have the share of value added in services and the share of uh, value added in manufacturing. And if we were to see our diversification, we would see it move towards the top right-hand corner. In actual fact, we've seen services increase in a number of countries, but not manufacturing. Manufacturing has stagnated or even declined. And in a couple of cases, we actually have this perverse relation where we've got countries where both services and manufacturing have declined. Now, in the case of Tanzania, for example, that's explainable uh, principally by uh, primary commodity resources. In the case of Kenya, to to do with its relative success in promoting horticultural exports, for example. But it's not the general trend that economists would like to see towards structural diversification. Another main challenge of the region um, is clearly employment. The demographic trends in the region are such that uh, the demographic pressures in general are such that we've got a lot of people entering into the labor market every single year. In the case of uh, Ethiopia, over 2 million people join the job market each year. In the case of DRC, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, all over a million people joining the job market. So there's enormous pressure on governments and, and the private sector to create to employment opportunities. Um, at the same time, uh, trends in intra regional trade were doing quite well, actually. We have one of the most consolidated regional blocks in Eastern Africa, the East Africa community, and up until 2012, the performance was very good in terms of increasing intra regional trade. Similar story in the case of EGAD. Um, Unfortunately, over the last five or six years just prior to the COVID crisis, we saw a stagnation in inter-regional trade as well, and that's one of the things, of course, that the AFC-FDI is designed to address. And finally, uh, the final stylized facts is actually we've seen a quite sharp uh, decline in inter-regional FDI uh, as well, and again, as Marilo was saying FDI is going to be one of the main sources of benefits for the AFCFTA going forward. Uh, so that's also a rather disappointing trend. So what is the potential of the AFCFTA for Eastern Africa region? Well, the first thing to stress is um, the economies, as I said, the income per capita is small. And even the countries with large populations, you know, they, they have a relatively small GDP, none of them reaching more than 100 billion. That might be the wrong way to look at it, though, for... Um, Small developing countries, uh, because of the adjustments that you can make if you look at the PPP uh, GDP, you'll see that the economies uh, experience a very significant adjustment upwards in the size of their markets. And if we take the uh, PPV measure of regional GDP, um, by approximately uh, next year, um, we were calculating just prior to the crisis, we'd have to revise that down a bit, but. Uh, the regional economy will be worth one trillion dollars. So it's a quite a substantial market amongst the 14 countries of Eastern Africa. And yet, there's a lot of um, pent-up um, consumer demand in the region, but it's being met principally by imports in the region. Um, a lot of that is being met by imports. If you look at the trade balance, we've seen exports have increased over the last two decades, but imports have been increasing generally much faster. And as a Subsequent consequence of this, we see trade balances uh, which are very strongly negative and large account deficits. Uh, when we looked into which sectors were driving these trade imbalances, we actually just did that disaggregation by sector of the trade balance. It wasn't in food trade, actually. You do see some countries are net food importers in a sub region, um, quite large ones in some cases. A couple of countries are net exporters of food as well. Um, agricultural raw materials, it was fairly balanced. Fuels, the region's a net fuel importer on aggregate. Um, there are some countries which are mineral wealthy, so the DRC, Tanzania, for example, net exports. But where you clearly see these uh, trade deficits are being generated is in manufactured goods, very large deficits in manufactured goods. And that's why we feel that the AFCFTA will be a very important step forward. If you look at the composition of regional trade for the region, for example, currently you've, you see that manufactured goods uh, to the rest of the world represent less than one fifth of total exports. But when you look at the intra-regional component, it's closer to half. And for the East Africa community, I've seen figures going up to two thirds of the intra-regional trade is manufactured. And that includes processed foods as well. So you can appreciate that if you wish to accelerate the diversification of the economies, it looks like the regional route is the way to go. Um, also, um, in our report, we just briefly point out the high profitability in a lot of the sectors which will be liberalized under the AFCFTA. Some of those are in service-related, ICT communications, but agribusiness, food and drink are also sectors where you've got high rates of profitability. So you would expect in the future, with a liberalization of intra-African investment flows, greater investment for the so that's the stylized facts of, about why it would be important. Our own assessment of the AFCFT for Eastern Africa was based on uh, GTAP. It was a fairly standard uh, modeling exercise in terms of the model closure and shocks that were applied. Uh, we get much smaller welfare gains than the ones that Mary Lau is uh, reporting. That's partially due to the fact that it's a dynamic model that she's discussing there. we actually use just a simple static um, Uh, model there and we were doing it partially in response to the request for member states to have a clearer idea about which sectors were going to be impacted so we were particularly interested in the sector oil chain we calculated uh, approximately a billion dollars in new intra uh, regional exports due to it we calculated uh, out of the model approximately two million additional jobs created by the afc fta and other benefits would come uh, through services and labor intensive manufacturers um, so just to stress, and I think this is where Mariella's, um, um study is of particular interest, we didn't include NTBs in our modeling or trade facilitation measures. And, and Clearly, quite a lot of the benefits are going to hinge on those. And nor did we model uh, increased services trade. And it's an interesting point that uh, Eastern Africa is actually quite strong in services trade. A number of countries actually have positive service trade balances whereas they have very large negative merchandise trade imbalances. So services is an important area. So in terms of the sectors in our modeling scenario, um, granted that we didn't include services there, you see that it tends to be um, manufacturing sectors, such as processed food, textiles and clothing, light manufacturing, which are the ones which benefit most. And those tend to be the most uh, labor intensive sectors. So that's a very good message in terms of helping in terms of addressing some of these employment challenges. And the one question comes up whenever we present these results, of course, is from government parties concerned about uh, tariff revenue loss. And there we we stress that our modelling scenarios here don't suggest it's going to be a major problem. Tariff revenue has anyway been declining as a percentage of government revenues over the recent decades. And as a percentage share of total government revenues, it's really quite small. So the largest uh, loss there would be 1.3% of total government. Tanzania, but for the other countries, it was under 1%. And let me finalize this presentation just with some quick anecdotal examples of the kind of impacts on the ground that we could see from the AFCFTA. So IATA conducted a study, for example, uh, talking about greater air service uh, sector liberalization, where they were estimating an additional 50,000 jobs for Ethiopia, Kenya, and Uganda. There was a study that undertaken by World Bank colleagues on uh, creating an Eastern African digital market where they talked about anywhere between 1.6 and 4.5 million additional new jobs. And uh, from our office, we're also very um, insistent on the message about the importance of the free movement protocol, because a lot of countries in our region complain of uh, job shortages in terms of skilled workers, at the same time where we know there's a lot of unemployed graduates. So we feel very strongly the free movement, movement protocol will also help address some of the skills constraints and uh, joblessness across the country. In terms of energy and food security, um, regional power pools, uh, there's a lot of work being undertaken in this uh, this area at the moment. Uh, The Grand Renaissance Dam in Ethiopia, for example, the ability to export more widely across the region. You often see it reported that actually there's, there's quite a lot of trade. A lot of it hasn't started yet from the Grand Renaissance Dam, but it's on tap. It should be starting fairly in the coming years now. Um, lower fuel import bills. Ethiopia itself imports most of its fuel from the Middle East, but there was a calculation that if it sourced its, um, a lot of its oil from a neighbouring South Sudan, it could cut its annual uh, fuel import bill by about 15-20%. And uh, finally, um, more inter-regional trade in food. Uh, Uganda, for example, is one country where already more than 50% of its trade is with the continent, uh, even prior to the implementation of the AFCFTA. And it's actually started to catch up and overtake Kenya in terms of being the leading trader within the East Africa community. And that's principally on the back of its agricultural trade. There are some diversified products in there, but it's a lot to do with its uh, position as a food producer for the weeding. Um, and very finally, this is to quote, um, these figures I believe come from uh, Marila's uh, study you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, just to show you here that um, these are the benefits coming from her study in terms of the uh, welfare changes just due to tariff changes. But at the minute you start adding NTMs on the reduction of non-tariff barriers measures and then trade facilitation, you see that the benefits are greatly enhanced. So I think it really makes the case very strongly for increased trade facilitation measures to accompany uh, the implementation of the AFCFT. And that's precisely why from our office in Eastern Africa, we have a strong partnership with Trademark East Africa, which has mobilized an additional 150 million US dollars to help with the trade facilitation in the region under the AFCF So the take homes just to finish, I hope I've not overrun my time. Um, We see that Eastern Africa has pockets of good practice in terms of regional integration within the EAC, for example. But it's not well integrated into the wider African economy. We feel that the AFCFTA will help fill the gaps that exist currently uh, where there are remaining tariffs, uh, something that David was talking about in his presentation. There are still a lot of uh, tariff barriers being applied. So for example, DRC is not a member of the Comessa Free Trade Area, nor is Ethiopia. And the AFCFTA will help tackle that. We believe that the AFCFTA will also act as a catalyst for existing projects of regional integration, such as the EAC, um, because it will be tackling precisely non-tariff barriers and trade facilitation as well. I think it will help focus minds on the importance of the regional integration agenda. And uh, finally, um, the AFCFTA effectively needs to be inclusive to be effective. Um, And we need to do a lot more work in terms of Um, carrying the message to the general public about the potential gains for this. Because all the surveys we've uh, been undertaking in the development of national strategies recently suggest the private sector is complaining. It doesn't really know a lot about it. It's got a very vague idea. And if you go to the general public, the level of awareness is is very low. So I think we've got to do a lot of work in, in, in that area as well. So um, that's uh, a summary of the report that you can find online as well. Um, and i just like to thank you for the opportunity to participate in this, uh, this interesting dialogue. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Andrew, and to all of our speakers for presenting um, a breadth of different analysis that has been done um, leading up to this report. I want to encourage all of our listeners to submit your questions, a reminder that you can do it directly on the event website, as well as um, using the hashtag askifpre on Twitter or through LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, I want to kick off with a question for David Laborde. Concerning the sensitive uh, products uh, clause, what were some of the criterion of selection of central of of sensitive products, and um, is there were there more important criterion for selecting sensitive products such as the their impact on public revenues, things like that,
2: David? So in the Thanks for the question. It's a very important one in all trade negotiation. The devil is in the detail. Uh, in the result I have shown, we have a political economy model that we calibrate to select this product, because actually, if you, for example, you take tariff revenue, if you have a very high tariffs that block any imports, uh, you don't collect tariff revenue. It can be very sensitive for you, but it will not appear in terms of, of fiscal uh, impact. So that's why we uh, actually combine. Uh, this kind of extended political economy model to do the selection. But by no way, we are sure that the model will actually uh, give us the list that the country will, will, will select. Okay, just assumption model-based. Uh, what we, we are trying to, to do is to show, you know, based on the revealed preferences of the country so far in trade negotiation and in framing their trade policy, what they were used to select a sensitive product. And that's what we, we project just of course in a consistent way, meaning that when an African country, uh, let's say like Morocco is going to liberalize or has liberalized with Europe or with the, US, the USA, or when they are going to liberalize with the rest of the continent, of course their list of product is not the same because the potential uh, of competition is not the same. So that's what we try to factor in. Now, different countries clearly have different um, way to do this aggregation both in terms of what the government is focusing on, and yes, the Ministry of Finance focuses on tariff revenue losses, but the Ministry of Agriculture has some specific value chain they want to, to protect. You have also the social uh, impact and a, a number of, of, of products also that are important for health can be liberalized uh, in priority, even if so far, for instance, they were representing some important tariff revenue because we still have Uh, in some countries, this pattern. But something that is quite challenging is we have already a number of custom union in Africa and they already have built a a common external tariff either in East Africa, in West Africa, in Central Africa. And they have to come also with a consistent list of sensitive product for the IFCFTA. And that has not been done everywhere. So you have still countries that will come with their list of sensitive product for the IFCFTA that may have not been fully harmonized with their neighbor, and why it takes so much time, and why we need in the coming weeks to, to have all the offers on the table, see the, uh, how these schedules um, have been delivered, and hopefully we will see in the coming years adjustment and still negotiation to make sure that most of these roadblocks will, will be removed uh, in, in the future, because from a trade negotiation point of view, if people do not agree to remove a 5% tariff, don't believe that they will remove a big regulation that creates a 50% NTM. You know, If it is so sensitive politically, um, they will keep protective measure until the end.
0: David, we have a quick follow-up question from Steve Land at the president of Manchester trade about if, if not all of those common external tariffs um, those within the custom unions, if those aren't clarified, um, how will the FCFTA operate um, on January 1st if those things haven't been settled?
2: So I'm going to be very politically incorrect. On January 1st, not a lot is going to happen. you know. We are going to see several years we are going to see some product liberalized, but countries are going first to say that you know we already have liberalized some product, even on an MFN basis. So uh, that's partly done for the intra-regional trade. That's from a purely accounting point of view, that's true. But we are going to see things happening during the year, still starting to figure out what is happening. Um, And it will take two, three, four years before we really see an acceleration uh, of the process. We should not be naive. It's always uh, like this. Uh, especially in a situation where, you know, with COVID 19 this year, there were some delays, some meetings will not be able to be uh, implemented. And last but not least, we are going to see some specific questions with third parties, because you have also some African countries that have signed trade agreements with people outside the African continent. And this agreement, there is what we call the MFN clause, meaning that if a country like I'm just going to take Morocco because it's a very advanced economy that have already some trade partners. In the agreement with the U.S., there is a specific regulation that say, oh, if you give a lower tariff to any partner, you should also give it to the U.S., even if it was sensitive for the U.S. So you are going to see a wave of lawyers that will start to look at that. And that's why I think these schedules are going to adjust. But yes, in uh, two weeks, it's not going to be the revolution. We are going to see an evolution. But that will also um, monitoring and accountability is so important in the process. Great,
0: thank you so much, David. Um, question uh, from one of our IFPRI colleagues from Marla. Um, the Your poverty uh, e- impact estimates, we're wondering, are those net impact, um, and then maybe Andrew, you can also touch on this from your study as well, meaning that there will be people getting out of poverty, but also people that may be becoming poor if they have lost income as a result of competing with imports. Um, and so, it do you have a gross impact as as well if it is an impact,
3: Marla? Yeah, that's true. That's a that's a net impact as a result of IFCFTA. So we already have some uh, assumed poverty reduction in the baseline due to the the growth rates and changes in income distribution that we foresee. Um, but um, uh, yes, the 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 limitation of the CGE model in some way is that um, the way we run it, there is no unemployment. So all new labor market entrants find Productive employment. So, of course, there will be temporary job losses as people find new jobs. But overall, we believe that um, with the faster growth and reallocation of labor force from uh, less to more productive industries, there is potential to accommodate those workers that could potentially lose jobs due to import competition. But I but because of the way the model is set up, we, we don't have the estimated like kind of temporary uh, unemployment. But we definitely have the numbers in the report that tell you about how many people needs to switch jobs. And I don't remember it on top of my head, but um, but yes, we have this job switching across sectors that could temporarily lead to job losses. But uh, the assumption in the model is that eventually um, People are able to to reallocate to the sectors that are expanding uh, in their countries.
0: Great, thanks so much, Marla. Andrew, uh, well, a follow follow up to Marla: Is there any um, built into the model any um, ability to to assess how difficult those switch switches can be? If it's a large geographic dif- difference or
3: of a difference in skills. No, that's a very good question, and it's it's actually it's of course it's a very important issue and uh, at everyone on on the policymakers' mind. If you look at trade policy changes, what will be the distributional effects like within countries? And um, this is something that you know we've done the report at the continental level. where it's hard to dig deeper into country-specific results, but we're beginning to work with countries. Uh, to fine-tune the assumptions, to tell us more what they think they are going to get out of the agreement in the coming year, in years in terms of commitments, in, uh, in terms of goods and services, and fine-tuning the analysis to look at the sub-national impact. And the database that we have uh, um, prepared also has the regional component. So for several countries, you can dig deeper into sub-national results. We're going to start with Ghana. Uh, and just continuing collaboration or in dialogue with the government, fine-tune the simulation. So, um, so all researchers, you know, looking into it now, have access to to better information to conduct that analysis. But in terms of like job switching costs, uh, they're not part of our estimates uh, in the model uh, in this current report. But I encourage everyone to look at the. Gender disaggregated labor database and dig deeper into re- subnational uh, components. We've developed a methodology to do it. We've applied it recently to another study for Sri Lanka, and we're planning to, to do it going forward for, for countries that we work directly with. Great.
0: Thank you so much, Marla. Andrew, do you have anything to add um, um, to that question from the Eastern Africa per- perspective?
4: Um, yeah, well, I'd just say a, a general point. I mean, um, it's complicated to uh, communicate with the general public what the potential gains are from the AFCFTA. And of course, they often quite they get a bit confused by the different modeling techniques that we have. Um, I wrote a paper um, over a decade ago with Professor Augustin Fosso actually, where we were pointing out that even from multilateral liberalization, African countries were starting to notice that you know the, the model is were not providing such large gains as they had been initially. And that was for a number of reasons, because the databases were improved, for example, to incorporate preferential market access. and That hadn't been the case, you know, when we we're talking about the Uruguay round and those first uh, CG models, which were very much uh, popular in the early 90s. Um, so there is an important issue about communication, about how the benefits will actually um, manifest themselves. And that's why in our report we mixed it a little bit talking about some of these anecdotal studies and sector specific studies where we felt that there were very strong gains to be had by creating those regional markets.
0: Great, thank you. the, this question is uh, um, about uh, other global free trade agreements have had to um, r- revise uh, uh, agreements in order to include environmental or labor protections um, due to s- sometimes exploitation that can happen um, of environmental or labor resources um, under initial agreement. And wondering if the AF- CFTA has built in any kind of regulations to help prevent um, any of those such abuses abuses from happening at its initiation. Um, so uh, Andrew, I, I maybe will f- think about the, the Eastern Africa perspective and then maybe open up to, to Marla and David, if we have time.
4: Yes, uh, thanks very much. Yes, that question's also come up in uh, presentations um, about you know, the uh, labor rights. Um, I pointed out at the time, um, we're in early stages with the AFC FTA. If the parallel, for example, uh, the best parallel with the Euro- Europe is the European Single Market Programme. Well, it took the Europeans you know, three or four decades before they started thinking of a social chapter, really, to the European integration process. Um, so I think there may be discussions going forward in the future about this, but the current stage it's focused on achieving the liberalisation, um, both in trade and services. And as David pointed out, it won't be a big bang on the 1st of January, it's gonna be a process and it's gonna take place over a period of 10, 15 years before the the full market, um, continental market is achieved. So um, yes, there's currently no direct provisions that talk to that. So we'd have to rely both on corporate social responsibility on the one side side, and then also on national member states legislation.
0: Great, thank you. we just have time, probably, we'll for one more question. But, but Nalechebo, Marla, or David, if you wanted to just add anything to that question,
2: just maybe one thing in the sense that you know we talk about the SFTA, but beyond it, there is the African Union that have a larger policy agenda. You know, so when you have a trade agreement between, let's say, South Korea and the U.S., you don't have an overall uh, political framework or policy framework, and you try to put in the trade agreement different. Issues that can uh, change the interaction and the economic relation between the two. Here in Africa, we we have broader initiative that normally should take care of, of this, and that's why you didn't need to force feed everything in a trade agreement.
0: Thank you, David. I want to ask one final question that has come up about informal trade, and I, I understand I, Andrew, I don't believe that it, that factors into the the Eastern Africa model, but Marla, wondering. Um, whether or not any of that factors in and how that informal trade might modify some of the conclusions of these reports?
4: Well, yes, it it would indeed, uh, Julia. It's a very good question because, actually, I often feel that we talk down intra-African trade too much. We often commonly cite these figures talking about 17 percent of um, African trade is intra-African trade. Um, Now, there's two reasons why that's underestimating the importance of intra-African trade. Uh, firstly, we have some large commodity exporters and obviously that biases um, the figures. So, for example, of the 450 million US, billion US dollars of exports from the African continent a year, at its peak, a country like Angola alone was exporting 60, 70 billion of oil. And of course, that makes it look like African trade is highly undiversified and very little with the continent. But if you strip those kind of uh, primary commodity exports out of the figures, you suddenly see that the intra-African trade component is much more important. And it's not exceptional, the level of intra-African trade, if you compare it with Southern, Southern, um, South America. Mercosur, for example, also has very low levels. And they're commodity exporters, but they're pretty diversified and much higher income countries uh, than we see in, in Africa. So... I think that's one thing to bear in mind. You know, the the commodity picture just distorts the relative importance of intra-African trade. And the second point is the informal sector trade, which is not taken into account often. Surveys in our region show that uh, informal trade is equivalent to 10, 15, 20 percent of exports. And so suddenly you go for a situation where you haven't got a 17 or 20 percent of intra-African trade. If you add on the informal sector trade as well, you're suddenly already in the 30s understanding it starts to look a little bit more normal. So I think the way that we account for inter-African trade is not quite right, and we undervalue it sometimes, the extent to which it is important to the local, regional economies.
0: Marla, is there anything like you'd like to add before we, we pass it off to Anton, who's also an, an expert in inter-Africa or
3: informal trade? No, I couldn't agree more that and um, that's the part of the story that we're missing, and it's critical to the distributional aspects as, as some estimates show that 80% of the small-scale traders are women, and that's their main main source of la- livelihood. But I think um just to add to what Andrea was saying, that uh, um we need to continue with the data efforts to to build the evidence, but also in the long run, one would anticipate as the trade cost goes down, those trade facilitation measures uh, and that are implemented, uh, reducing the, the cost of crossing the border and the administrative burden of trading, then part of that informal trade will be brought into the formal channels, And that's something to very to minus an additional uh, benefit. Thank you. Thank you so much,
0: Marla. And I'm glad to pass it off now uh, for some closing remarks to Antoine Boit, who is a, a senior research fellow at IFPRI. Antoine.
5: Well, thank you. Thank you very much uh, to the three discussions for a very, very, dis- very interesting uh, webinar. Uh, I think that we have now a, a more complete perspective on uh, the potential implications of the A F C F T A, And I'm really happy with the last questions concerning informal trade because I think that uh, it is a, a, a very important phenomenon in Africa. And and, uh, I think that it is uh, uh, underestimated. And I really think that it is a direction of research, which is really important in order to really understand what could be the potential implications of the AFCFTA to take into account uh, informal trade. Of course, I know that it's not easy, but uh, uh, I guess that um, one really important thing concerning Africa is data. Uh, we don't have enough uh, high-quality data, and this is really uh, an investment that we must take in the in the coming years. Also, I, I think that the, the the agreement will have another implications, which is uh, also really important. It has been mentioned by the by the three speakers. Uh, African trade, particularly in agriculture, is marked by specialization and export in the unprocessed sector and imports of uh, semi-processed and processed products. Uh, And if we look in detail at the structure of trade, uh, and this is what the AATM report, which is uh, done by uh, IFPRI and Academia 2063, uh, we can see that the the specializations of African exports in unprocessed products is especially strong in its traits with the the rest of the world, with uh, out of Africa. And uh, while if you look at trade between African countries today, it was also mentioned by by Andrew and David, uh, this is uh, more balanced and there are more semi-processed and processed products. And and we even see now the beginning of uh, an interesting uh, phenomenon, which is the fact that there are some uh, African countries that import raw products from other African countries. It has been mentioned by also by by Andrew and they transform it and David, and they transform it and they re-export something so it's it's really an important phenomenon because it looks like there are regional value chains that uh, are taking place progressively and uh, of course this is a very interesting process in terms of gains in competitiveness and in particular uh, in the future to gain in terms of exports to the rest of the world. Uh, I would like to mention that there will be some political resistance to the AFCFTA not only uh, at the level of countries but also within countries and this is why I think that uh, not only uh, active uh, accompanying measures are important like trade facilitations to amplify the the gain from trade liberalisation but also passive measures, accompanying measures, like for example to help uh, uh, people that work in import competitive sectors to 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 face uh, this shock, which is really important. So I think that uh, I would like to thank again the, the three discussants and also Julie who has done a, a terrific job and Nali Shebo also for the, this really interesting introduction. I wish you uh, the best and uh, take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you again to everyone for joining us, I want to remind our audience that we have IFPRI has one last seminar of 2020 on Thursday, December 17th, please join us for that and then thank you again to all of our speakers for. um, I think we've really captured just how complicated this is and how important the research of of places like the World Bank, UNECA, IFPRI are um, as uh, as the negotiations continue for this agreement. Thank you everyone and have a great evening, morning or afternoon. Bye-bye.